2 Corinthians chapter 6. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favour I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. We put no stumbling block in, in anyone's path, so our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, in riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, impurity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in fruitful speech, in truthful speech, and in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonour, bad report and good report, um, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak to you as my children. Open wide your hearts also. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of, of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit and perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Thanks, Barry. If you've got your Bibles there, please keep them open or your apps. Um, my name's Jeff. If you haven't met me before, I feel like some way I should apologise for not being Mike um, this morning. It would have been pretty cool to come up here and tell you I'm Mike again. Um, let me pray and let's start. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word um, speaks to us um, by your spirit, applying it to our hearts. And we ask that this morning that you would do that for us, that you would take this word written thousands of years ago for your people and that you would apply it to our hearts today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I wonder if you've ever heard of the game of truce. Uh, It was a game that my brother and I played. Uh, I'm not sure if it was just us who played it or whether it was a kind of 80s, 90s growing up thing. Uh, If you haven't heard about it, let me tell you how it works. And I apologise for parents who've got kids in the room. I'm not trying to give them ideas. The game of truce, it works this way. You inflict as much pain as possible to the other person and the loser is the person who calls truce. So it can be anything. You could be wrestling. You could be flicking each other's knuckles with a spoon. Uh, You could be playing that bloody knuckles game where you smash each other's knuckles. Uh, It could be... um, Chinese burn, Indian, I don't know what you're allowed to call it anymore, but if you grew up in the 80s and 90s, you know what I mean. It could be any of those things, and the loser was the person who called truce first. So both parties would agree to not continue, or at least not until the next round. And it was a stupid game, really, because truce never really was truce. I was three years younger than my brother, so when we hit our teens, he had three years of testosterone on his side. Needless to say, I never won the game of truce once. You know, there's two things that you can tell about me straight away. One, I was young, and two, I was stupid. Truce is a timeout. It's not a complete surrender. It's not a complete victory. It's this kind of hazy middle ground. And it depends on both parties being in agreement with each other. We're not really friends, although we kind of act like it. And you could be fooled into thinking that's a way to friendship, but it's like this peace zone that could break at any time, usually in car trips, and it usually did not end well. Paul's concern for the Corinthians today in this passage is that they have made a truce with sin. Instead of responding to the grace of God by declaring war on sin, idolatry and unbelief, they had in fact called truce. And what we're going to see today is a disciple of Christ can never and should never call truce on sin. We cannot be friends. Because sin really is a frenemy. Is that, is that still a word today? I spoke to four middle-aged men, and they said it would be rad to use it this morning. And so I thought it would be okay. But sin is a frenemy. Do you know what a frenemy is? A frenemy is an enemy who acts like a friend. Someone who would entice you, make you feel confident in their presence, only because they actually want to destroy you. Sin lulls you into a self-confidence because it seeks to destroy you. And you know this from experience. We make truce with sin all the time. I'm not preaching just to you, I'm preaching to myself here. You know, there's that app that you know you should really delete because it causes you so much trouble, but you just think that maybe if I just give it a couple more days before I go on it again, I'll be able to control myself. There's that show that you watch where you just wait for the right moment just before that scene happens to flick. You make a truce with sin. There's the conversations that you have with others that you know are really unhelpful and you probably shouldn't go to that group and have that conversation, but you can control it this time, I'm sure. And so you make a truce with sin. But a disciple of Christ cannot call truce on sin. 
And as we go through this passage today, we'll see that Paul's heart for the Corinthians is that they would turn back to God. Read with me verse 1 and 2. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favour, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. So this flows in straight after Paul has just been telling the Corinthians, be reconciled to God. He's concerned for their salvation. He's concerned that they've taken God's grace and it's had no effect in their life. And he's calling them out and calling them and commanding them to come back to God. Because the day, like all days, will end. The sun will set. The night will come. Favour will finish. Return to him now, Corinthians. Because you don't know what time of day it is. You don't know if you're going to die today. You don't know if he's going to return today. Today is the day to turn back to him. And so then Paul lists out in verse 3 to 10 all the ways that Paul has lived so as not to put any stumbling block, any hindrance from them responding to God's grace. He did everything to ensure that they would respond rightly. He imitated Christ. His life was marked by holiness, verse 6 and 7. Paul's life was drastically changed by grace and he made no provision, no truce for sin in his life. Think about Paul's life. Prior to meeting Jesus, a Pharisee among Pharisees, working hard for God's favour, respected and honoured in the community. Someone who was so passionate, he put people into prison who were following Jesus. He approved of their death. And then he meets Jesus on the road and he's changed by grace. He makes no truce with sin and so his life commends the gospel to those he preaches to. But Paul is not just building an argument of, look how good my life was. He's not concerned about his reputation, about God's, but he wants to pour out to them, show them that, look how much I love you. Verse 11 and 13. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange... I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Paul's love for the Corinthians has been unrequited love. He has embraced them. He's welcomed them into the very core of his being. He's made room for them. But like arriving late for a Sunday roast, all Paul gets is the cold shoulder. That's all he gets, the cold shoulder. They've narrowed their hearts to him. They're not letting him in. And the problem with that is, if you leave Paul and him uh, behind, you leave the gospel that he preaches behind. That's what Paul's concerned about. Before we move on, I want you to notice one thing too. Paul says in verse 11, we have spoken freely to you Corinthians. I want you to notice that love speaks freely, especially when it sees a brother or sister appear to make a truce with sin. 
You know, there's times when we should have spoken freely, when we could see people walking in a path that was not good. Lexi and I have friends in Canberra that we often go to visit once or twice a year. And a couple of years ago, uh, we went to, to Canberra, we stayed with them and they took us to a festival that was going on. It was, a, it was fantastic. We went out with the kids. We had a great time. Later in the evening, uh, there was a live band playing and the husband of Lexi's friend uh, went and started dancing in front of this live band. No problem with that. But the problem I did have was that he was dancing with work colleagues all younger women, with the means of building relationship because he was their superior. Now, alarm bells started to go in my head at that point, um, but I didn't say anything. Later that night, we get home, about 11 o'clock, we're putting the kids to bed, and he gets up and says, I'm just so wired, I need to go out. I need to go to the pub and I'm going to meet up with those work colleagues again and we'll we'll just hang out at the pub. And I was silent. I should have said, don't be stupid. What are you doing? You have a beautiful wife here at home and you're going out to work, colleagues, young women in a pub? What are you thinking? But no, I stayed silent. And a year later, Lexi gets off the phone to her friend and he's left her for a work colleague. Now, I might not have changed his heart. I probably wouldn't have. But at least I would have given it a prick. I would have at least spoken freely out of love for him. He was making a truce with sin when he should have been fleeing from it. Love speaks freely, especially when it sees someone making a truce with sin. So how do we avoid making a truce with sin? Well, Paul tells us in the following verses. Read verse 14 with me. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. See, here's the heart of the problem. This is why the Corinthians have lost their affection for Paul. They had yoked themselves to unbelievers. If you're going to avoid making a truce with sin, you need to know who you belong to. Now listen, this is not primarily a verse about young Christians and dating although it has been used many times and many books have been written using this verse of not being yoked with unbelievers. No, it's broader than that. It's deeper than that. And to get the picture, you need to understand what a yoke is. And we saw a bit of it in the kids' talk. A yoke was a wooden beam with loops in it and that was to go around the neck of an ox. Now, ox is just a cow that has been trained pretty well since birth to listen to and follow its master. The yoke was designed and used to unite and to bind two animals together so that they could work. The animals needed to pull together in order to follow the master's lead. So to be under a yoke is to be in service of a master who would lead out either in front or behind sometimes, but they would call out commands, which the oxen would then follow. Both oxen had to listen to the same master in order to move in the right direction. 
So to be yoked to someone is to be bound to them, united to them, of one accord with them. Bound to unbelievers and unbelief is a problem. It's a mismatch. You have different masters. Because believers, brothers and sisters, we've come under the yoke of Christ. Matthew 11.30, his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. To then yoke yourself to an unbeliever makes any type of movement towards following Christ difficult at best. They're pulling in different directions. They don't have a common purpose. You will not get far. To avoid calling truce on unbelief and sin, don't unite yourself to unbelievers. Know who you belong to. Well, what does it look like to be united to someone and dragged by them? Dragged by an unbeliever. It's not going to be a sudden jerk. Although it can be jarring at times. No, it'll be slow movement. You're pulling in tension. It will slowly move you away. And it will be a movement from looking to Christ and to the kingdom to sharing their values and looking into the temporary things to satisfy and fulfill you. It will be a watering down of the truth of God's word, a skimming over the seriousness of sin and the greatness of what God has called you to. It will be a life that imitates the culture around it instead of the Christ that it's supposed to follow. Do you know, one of the scariest verses that I think is in the Bible for us who live in the West in particular is Mark chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, where Jesus is explaining the sower and the seed parable. And he says this to them when he's explaining it to the disciples. Still others, like the seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke out the word, making it unfruitful that's what it looks like to be dragged by an unbeliever your eyes are now fixed on the temporary your values are now in line with the culture around you you're not listening well to the master that you're supposed to be serving and you might not even feel the pull so is this a verse for teenagers and dating well, yes, but it's also a verse for all of us as well. To avoid making a truce with sin, you also need to know who you are. Read verse 14 with me. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Belal is believed to be another word for Satan. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? Paul's using these rhetorical questions. Rhetorical question, a question with an obvious answer. That's what it is, isn't it? You see what I did there? A couple of you on board, excellent. Excellent. He's using it to emphasize two things. 
One is their identity. The identity of a believer. You are the righteousness of God. You are light. You have been brought into the kingdom of light. You are Christ's body. United to him. You are the temple of the living God. Emphasizing the identity of the believer and at the same time the foolishness of trying to couple these things with what is their polar opposites. Let's read it again and see how opposite they truly are. Verse 14, halfway through. What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Nothing. Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? It can't. What harmony is there between Christ and Satan? There is no harmony. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Nothing. What agreement is there? Between the temple of God and idols, there is none. True discipleship is turning. Turning from sin to Christ, from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, from idols to serve the living God. Where's the turning? That's what Paul's asking. Because there's no peace, there's no truce between these two things that we keep putting together. Think of the imagery, light and darkness. You enter to, into a dark room at night, you've come home, it's pitch black. There is no light in the room until you flick the switch and the darkness is gone. The light has come. They cannot coexist. Well, the, the thought of harmony between Jesus and Satan, an orchestra, all tuned to the same key, all playing from the same music, a beautiful symphony. No way. It can't happen. The temple of the living God and idols? The living God whose word spoke out creation from the smallest molecule which he controls right now to the millions of stars that make up our galaxy, to the the millions of galaxies that we know about, bringing him into unity with a lump of wood that cannot see or hear or move or understand. These things, they're polar opposites. We can see that. But hang on, I've missed one. What about believers and unbelievers? Don't we have a lot in common? Common family? Common humanity? Common ethnic backgrounds? Common interests and hobbies? Common gender, dislikes, likes, political views? Don't we have so much in common? What's the difference? Well, Paul actually answers that for us. Back in chapter 5, just quickly turn back or look back with me. Chapter 5, verse 15. And he, that's Jesus, he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, united to Christ, yoked to Christ, under his command, if anyone is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. See, we have a different master. We've come under his yoke. We're following his lead. And unfortunately, at this point in time, they're not. We are a new creation. The old ways have gone. We can't go back there. We need to cut those ties that that influence, influence us to do that. Stop regarding things from a worldly point of view. These things are temporary. They will not continue into eternity. Do you know, the sad thing is, and I know it's not just for me, I know it's for most of us in this room, that I have more in common with my brothers and sisters here than I do with members of my own family. I'm not happy about that. But it's become more and more clear over the years as I go to family events, as I sit and listen to their conversations, we're on completely different pages when it comes to what is valuable to us, to what we're living for. So do I have a thing in common with unbelievers when it comes to the things that really matter? I don't. Neither do you. And it is, it is sad, but it's the truth. We do not have what really counts in common. And pray that that's not yet we don't have those things in common. To avoid making a truce with sin, you need to know who you are. Only bind yourself to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't bind yourself to unbelievers, even if that is the closest relationships that you've got with family. Don't bind yourself to them. Because know this, who you're bound to will influence the direction of your life. Who you're bound to will influence the direction of your life. So yoke yourself to someone who's going to influence you, going to help you to follow the way of the master. And so here's a question for you to think through as you look at this passage as well. From this passage, from God's word, can a Christian have a best friend who's an unbeliever? Finally, to avoid making a truce with sin, you need to know what you are. Let's keep reading verse 16 to 18. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. What Paul's done is he's taken a collection of Old Testament scriptures and pushed them together to show and to emphasize God's command for his people to be separate from unbelievers. God's concern was that if they unite themselves to the unbelieving nations around them, they will be drawn into their idolatry. 
They would be led as they are yoked to those people, led in their direction. It wasn't unfounded that God was concerned about this. We see time and again through the Old Testament, that's exactly what happened. His people bound themselves to other nations and ended up serving and worshipping their God instead of the God of heaven and earth. But what I want you to truly notice is what is God's desire here? What is his purpose? His purpose is to dwell with his people. From the Garden of Eden, where he walked in the cool of the day with humanity, to the wilderness where he commanded them how to make a tabernacle so his presence could be there, to the temple in Jerusalem, to Jesus coming and dwelling with his people, to us today as his spirit lives in us, to the new creation where one day we will be with God for eternity. Does that not blow your mind? Why? Why would God want to dwell with me? I'm sure Lexi would probably be able to answer that as well. Why? Why love a deceitful, thieving, filthy hypocrite that I was when God saved me? Someone who knew the truth and willfully, gladly rebelled against him, putting up some kind of facade that I was this person I wasn't. There was nothing in me, there's nothing in you that would attract him to us. I didn't have potential, he didn't see potential in me. The only potential I had was to continue to cross the line, to keep building up his wrath against me. I was guilty and his holiness kept me from his presence, rightly kept me from his presence. But because of his great love, He saw my hopelessness and helplessness that I could do nothing on my own to earn his forgiveness. And instead, he, God Almighty, comes to dwell with his people. Jesus lives the life of obedience that I and you can never live. And although innocent, he dies in place of me. He takes on the penalty of my sin. And the God of all is broken and poured out for me. Why? So that he can dwell with me forever. So that he can dwell with you forever. God so loved me. Do you tell yourself that? This is who I am. This is what God has done for me. This is where Jesus, whose yoke we are under, is leading all who follow him into this relationship that can never be broken. This relationship that is full of joy and peace forever. Not based on anything that we've done except call out to him for help. Have you called to him for help? Have you asked him to take you in? To place his yoke upon you? 
And friends, this isn't just a future hope and promise, but it's a present reality as well for God's people. We are the temple of the living God. Temple, as in literally the holy of holies. There is massive implications then, is there not, as to how we live. We are the holy of holies where God's presence dwells. Do you want to see God's presence? Look around you. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are the temple of the living God. And as the church binds itself to each other, as we are yoked together, as we love each other, as we minister to one another, God is ministering to us through the temple, his people. You don't feel God's presence through a once-off emotional experience. That's not how you see or feel God's presence. It's as you gather amongst God's people and as they bind themselves to each other and love one another in glory to God, that is God's presence. We are his temple. So yoke yourselves to believers. Make no truce with sin. Don't entertain partnership or fellowship or agreement with anything that opposes God. Because friendship with the world is enmity toward God. James 4.4 No flee, no truce, no surrender, no treaty. Well, if to make no truce with sin, how then should we live? Verse 17. Therefore come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I'll be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, promises of eternally dwelling with God, promises of him dwelling within us, of his love for us and acceptance of us. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, the outward and the inward, perfecting holiness or bringing holiness to perfection or completion out of reverence for God. You're separating yourself for communion with God. Listen, by cutting ties with unbelievers and unbelief and sin, you're not giving up a great thing for a lesser thing. God's not telling you to give up a juicy piece of steak and go and chew on a limp piece of lettuce. I know for some of you that might be a better option and we'll pray for you later. No, he's offering you the juicy steak and the plate and the house and the estate, he's offering you everything. Just take that limp piece of lettuce out of your mouth. Stop toying with sin. Stop making a truce with it. Cut it out. Make war with it. Because the truth is, if we call on him as father, if we are part of his family, then children take on the family likeness whether they want to or not. Whether you want to or not, you either look like your parents or act like your parents at some times or have a personality or a temperament that's similar to your parents. Children reflect their parents. 
And so do all that is within your power to live a holy life, one that imitates Christ. What if you're married to an unbeliever? What then? 1 Corinthians 7 is quite clear. Don't separate. You've made a promise that you will never leave or forsake that person. Love your unbelieving spouse. Pray for them. Imitate Christ to them in the way that you relate to them and speak of them. If they want to separate, let that be, says Paul. But you trust God. Follow Jesus under his yoke. It will be tough. That's why you need to call upon your brothers and sisters to help you bear that burden and allow them to minister to you. Well, how do we live in a culture of unbelief? Because the deep question then is, can we even have friends who are unbelievers? And the answer is absolutely. Sure you can. Actually, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, he gives people there in Corinth instructions on, if you're invited to someone's place who worships idols, go and have a meal with them. Having a meal with someone, bringing someone into your house, that's a deep relationship. That's a, that's a friendship. Now, it's not a call to an Amish life where we completely shut off the world, but it's a call to wisdom. Don't affirm your friends who do not believe in Jesus in their unbelief. Don't encourage them in their unbelief. Instead, pray for them. Look for the opportunities to speak to them about Jesus because your deepest desire should be that they follow him too. No, we we are not of the world, but we are sent to the world. So yes, have have friendships with non-Christians. But be careful. Watch yourself. Make no truce with sin. You have been freed for the fight. You haven't been freed from the fight. You know, there was a story of a man who... um, Late at night, got robbed, and the uh, the thief came in. He managed to overcome this man, bound him up. He was in the top story of his apartment, on a chair, tied with ropes, and he was listening to the thief down the stairs, making a complete mess of his house. And along comes a mice, some mice, and start chewing the rope. Now, I don't think this is a true story. <laughs> the man is free. So he goes to his cupboard and he grabs his cricket bat and he heads downstairs. He's been freed for the fight. He hasn't been freed from the fight. He's been freed for it. Make no truce with sin. Let's pray. Father God, we, we pray that we would have a new sense of what it means to belong to you of what it means to be under Jesus' yoke, which is easy and light, of what it means to be called in to dwell with you forever. And in knowing that, we pray that you would help us to not make a truce with sin in our lives, but to war against it, to want to take on that family likeness. Help us and change us, we pray, that we may be truly reflecting you to others. 
and making no truce with sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.